Hello, my friends. It's Ryan from the Prolific Creator Podcast. Now, many of you have asked, hey, Ryan, how do I support the show? Well, I finally listened. Starting today, you can subscribe to the Prolific Creator Plus on ACAST Plus for $3 a month. That's less than a cup of coffee. No apps to download and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Get access to the entire archive of Prolific Creator Awesomeness. Over 160 episodes going back to 2017. Yes, that's right, my friends. A plethora of information and inspiration, tips, tricks, and interviews to get your art and work into the world. Remember those ads? Say bye, bye, bye. Wait, there's more. For $5 a month, you can get access to the full prolific creator experience. This includes the full archives, early access to episodes, listener Q&A, book and movie reviews, and interviews not for the public, and perhaps any other awesomeness I might do on the microphone. Sounds awesome, right? Yeah, it does, Ryan. If you want to listen for free, you'll notice the last 50 episodes or so will always be available wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, by subscribing today, you don't have to download any new apps, and you can simply keep listening on the podcast platform you prefer. Cool. Okay. Cool. Thanks for your love and support in advance. Simply click on the link in the show notes or on my website, and it'll take you where you need to go. Now on to the show. The following podcast is an exclusive presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to the Prolific Writer Podcast, where speed's the name of the game. Follow an indie author and publisher and his guests as they share inspiration, tips, and advice on writing fast, writing often, and writing well. So you can do the same. Here's Ryan. Well, hello, hello, hello. This is your prolific writer podcast host, Ryan J. Pelton, the podcast dedicated to helping you write fast, often, and well in no particular order. So glad that you are here. However, you are hearing my voice on the train, on the walk, on the run, in the gym, at the store, doing the dishes. However, you're hearing us. We hope that this podcast will be helpful for you to expose you to prolific writers around the world. We talked to some of the most prolific writers in the world. That's not hyperbole. And also inspire you, encourage you, equip you to get those words on the page. So wherever you find yourself is your first time listening. Hey, welcome. Glad you're here. My name is Ryan and this is my podcast. And I'm so excited for episode number 68. Yeah, 68 people. And this is a fun one because I have one of the most prolific writers on the planet in the indie community today who has written huge, big, best-selling books. Russell Blake is on the show, and I'm so pumped to have Russell on the show for a couple reasons. One is, if you go all the way back to episode number three, it will say Russell Blake in the title, but actually didn't have Russell Blake on the show. I actually did an episode where I looked at one of his blog posts that he wrote and he reflected on after writing 51 books. He's only been writing and publishing since 2012, so that's pretty astounding. I think we talked about it. He's already over 60 books uh, in the can and he's doing well and uh, written mysteries and action adventure and sci-fi and thrillers and, and you name it. He's done a lot, a lot of stuff. But way back in episode number three, I talked about uh, that blog post and uh, the things he was learning and, and talked a lot about of a lot of the principles that I think uh, shape the prolific writer that 
that, that it's not about, you don't have to write 61 books in a few years. You, you don't have to write a hundred books. Uh, we've had authors that have written uh, literally hundreds of books, but, but, you know, consistent prolific work is, is if you want to, you want to make it, you want to get some eyes on your work. You want to share your message. And again, we're not talking dollars and cents. We're not talking about making millions of bucks, but putting our butts in the chair, doing the work, uh, we need to be prolific. And Russell Blake is a really helpful voice in that. And this episode is jam packed with great information and inspiration. And I'm so excited to share that with you before we get to the interview, just a couple quick housekeeping items. Want to keep the house clean. Want to let you know what's going on in the house, my house, um, maybe not the specifics, but, but part of my house. Uh, one of those things is a new book out secrets of the ambassadors. My first middle grade novel that I wrote with my sons. And, uh, it's, it's, it's finally out. You've probably heard me mention it. If you've been listening to the show for the last few weeks, uh, maybe the last couple of months, been talking about this thing forever, but I'm really excited because, uh, today, depending on when you hear this, probably when this goes live, uh, the print versions are available. And so we're already selling some print copies, excited about that. Uh, especially with middle grade, uh, print is very important. People still buy print people. Um, that's not a myth. That's not a fantasy, especially with kids books. Kids want to hold the book. They want to have the book. Even, uh, my kids aren't even that excited about iPads and, and Kindles when it comes to reading. Um, oh, they're excited about the iPad, but just not for reading. Um, won't go into that right now, but, um, but print is available. So secrets of the ambassador. I read under uh, my kids books under JB Ryan. You can find that on Amazon. I'll put it in the show notes. Check it out. If you got kids eight to 12, especially boys, it's really written for boys that don't like to read. I'm trying to get kids to read, um, eight to 12 boys. Uh, if you uh, have grandchildren, great, great, uh, you know, summer read fast, fun action adventure, Indiana Jones esque this, this adventurer family. And they do all kinds of cool stuff. And uh, actually working on book two and book three. So um, book two is off to the editor and book three is still being worked on. And so I'm excited to, to share those with you and hopefully you enjoy them. If you do read it, I'd love to have a review as well. Um, one other thing before we get into the interview is, as always, our show today is host, hosted by uh, the Project Entertainment Network, a family of podcasts. Go check them out, projectentertainmentnetwork.com. Uh, but we also have our sponsor uh, that sponsors all the Project Entertainment Network shows, Subculture Corsets and Clothing. You've heard me talk about them many times over. But if you're looking for unusual clothing, shoes, accessories, they offer a wide selection of men's and women's clothing at great prices. Subculture also offers a cool selection of shoes and accessories steampunk gothic apparel retro corsets so much more so go check out subculturecorsets.com and make sure you use the discount code the prolific writer because if you do on your first purchase you'll get 10 percent off your first per first purchase so subculturecorsets.com i'll put it in the show notes also if you're in the jackson florida jacksonville florida that is not jackson florida i don't know if that's a place but jacksonville florida just off i-95 you can visit their store they have a a store as well that's in a local mall there so subculturecorsets.com the prolific writer put it in at, at checkout and get 10 percent off your next purchase now before we get to the interview, I keep saying we're going to get to it. I promise we will. There's so much cool stuff going on. I'm so excited about. Also, if you are a writer, a wannabe writer, you want to get published, you want to figure out how to do that, 
you need someone to hold your hand and get your work out into the world, go to rockhousepublishing.com, rockhousepublishing.com. I'll put it in the show notes. And uh, this is my own publishing uh, company and love to talk more about your book, your project. We, we, we have kind of opened up uh, some opportunities to help uh, writers get their work out into the world. And so you can find out all the information there. Um, a friend of mine are working together to do that. And really just a way to serve the writing community because we've learned a lot of things. I've learned a lot of things writing, you know, over 17 books and doing this podcast and, and just writing for a long time. And there's just a lot of, uh, you know, bad advice out there too. And so we're trying to help again, not to say we're perfect by any means, but to say there's, there's ways we can get our books out into the world in a, an effective way, cost effective way, and someone to actually really hold your hand to do it. So we really want to create an environment where, uh, we help you coach you walk with you talk with you answer questions and help you have a solid marketing plan and to get your work on the world because I know there's so many of you that have have books in your minds and your hearts you have messages you want to share that are going to impact a lot of people and we don't want that to hold you back and so we want to help any way that we can so go check out rockhousepublishing.com uh, you can find out some other cool writing resources there as well so thank you for doing that and without further ado, here is best-selling, prolific writer, Russell Blake. Here's our conversation. Enjoy, and I'll talk to you real soon. Welcome everyone to the prolific right. writer. I am so pleased today to have Russell Blake on the show. And if you don't know Russell Blake, you will know him soon. He's a best-selling New York Times best-selling author, Wall Street Journal best-selling author, USA Today best-selling author. I'm not even going to try to name all of his books, but he's written a ton of them. And uh, hey, say uh, hello to the prolific writer uh, community. Hello, everybody. Glad to be here. Well, yeah, thanks, Russell, for uh, making the time. And, uh, you know, a couple years ago, um, I read a blog post that you wrote um, about your 51st book. I think it was in 2016. So we're recording this in 2018. And uh, you did did some reflection on your success. And uh, 51 books is, is quite amazing. Um, and so, you know, just as we kind of kick off our time together, you know, what, what, what has changed with you since that first book to number 51 or now it'd probably be 60. Well, I think it's over 60. I don't know. I mean, I always have like two or three in the can too. So, um, you know, if you count those, it's probably like 62 or 63. Um, I would say the landscape has changed a lot in that, um, I used to not really have to do any marketing and nowadays, you know, I, I've, I've got, I'm deeply involved in advertising. Um, but beyond that, I mean, you know, it's gotten tougher. You know, I look back at my earnings in 2012 and 2013, 2014. Those those really were the golden years, and I think everybody knew it at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's gotten tougher. But you know, there's still people making astounding livings. Mm -hmm. um, you know, outside of traditional publishing. So uh, I would say, on balance, it's still it's still a pretty good gig. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Have you, uh, you know, just when you look at, you know, friends, part part of the indie community and otherwise traditional community, I mean, have you seen people come and go? I mean, that had early success and now they're, you know, nowhere to oh, be yeah. found or. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, probably what 60 or 70 percent of the people that were charting regularly back in 2012, 2013, you know, you, you just don't hear their names anymore. I mean. You know, I was trying to remember some of them the other day, and I couldn't, you know, I was drawing a blank. You know, Amanda Hawking, John Locke. I mean, these people were superstars back in 2011. And, you know, you just don't hear about them. But they've been replaced by new ones, you know, and you've got the folks that were up and coming in 2012, 2013. You know, some of them had brief but bright careers, and then others have been doing really well. Guys like A.G. Riddle are knocking it out of the park. And then one of my buddies, you know, Michael Anderley is is doing extremely well with his his series. So, you know, it's just as the landscape has changed and reader tastes have changed, different types of writers have sort of um, come into the market. And the ones that are more marketing savvy, I think, have done better. So would you say, you know, when you talk about the change, the landscape, you know, you said earlier, you know, I didn't have to do as much advertising or marketing. Is that because of just more saturation, more people, or is it just harder to get out there or what? what's the... I think it's a combination of both things. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have God knows how. I mean, I think traditional publishing releases something like, you know, depending on what source you use and what you look at between 50,000 and 300,000 titles a year. Mm-hmm. So just, out, you know, and indies probably put out out at least you know half a million to a million titles a year so between all of that the readers got 1.3 1.4 million possible books that are new this year um, to choose from so sure that's part of it but I think the biggest part for me was um, you know a, we exist at the at the pleasure of the king and Amazon is the king so as they've modified their algorithms and the visibility that you can get from their algorithms um, you know, advertising has gone from being sort of an option to something that's absolutely required if you want to make any money. So that's a fundamental shift in the way um, readers find you and you find readers. I mean, a good example being that when I first got into this game, you know, in 2011, uh, you could run a first book in a series free and just market that a little bit. And it was guaranteed to that was your sales funnel. And if you converted at, you know, at a one to 10 rate or one to 15 rate for every 10 people that read your book, you know, the the rest would go on to read the rest of the series. Well, you know, free is now it's been dead for two years. It's just got no visibility. In fact, even if you type in if you type into Amazon search engine and look for titles that are free, like I've got some titles that are free. If you type those names into the search engine, they simply don't come up. So so free has now been rendered invisible. So that was a seismic shift in the landscape back in probably 2015, 16, somewhere in there. And, you know, discovery, they keep monkeying with the the landing pages. So now, you know, also bots were the other way that you would get noticed. Well, if you look at the Amazon page now, I I just looked at one the other day because I was um, I was I was going, why am I seeing you know, so little um, pickup and follow through from my Elsa bots. And the answer is they, they changed the way that Elsa bots are displayed. Mm-hmm. 
now I have two rows of paid advertising below my you know, book information. And then you have to scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page and there's this little strip of Elso bots. So what it's done is it's effectively reduced the, the organic discovery to nil. So of course that's that's played a massive role part in in a shift in the way that that authors get discovered. So those that get pretty good at advertising and have some money to throw at it, you know, they get noticed. The ones that don't kind of don't. Mm-hmm. So so it's less of a meritocracy now than it was maybe in 2011, 2012, 2013 mm-hmm. is the way I would put it. Now, I, I've always loved your uh, blog posts and, and, and your books as well. Just a, a lot of what you talk about, too. You talk about marketing and things, but you always talk about you know writing a good story, getting better at craft, because in the end, I mean, you still have to have a good book. I mean, people find your stuff. You have a great cover, great description, throw some ads, but if your story stinks, it stinks. Um, well, I think, and I think that's changed a lot. Like, if you look at new um, releases now, mm-hmm. you know, covers are much, much better than they were five years ago. Mm-hmm. Like even the clueless authors have figured out they can't mm-hmm. just, yeah, you know, they can't just do something homemade with something right. their daughter drew, and you know expect to sell books. So I would say, eighty-five percent to ninety percent of all the new releases I see from indies have pretty much pro, you know, right up there with trad publishing mm-hmm. um, covers. So that's changed. So that's a positive. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but go ahead. I'm sorry I interrupted you. I just wanted yeah, to no, cap no. that on the uh, on on the what's changed. I'm still back on what's changed. And one thing is obviously, yeah, covers. The yep. packaging is much more pro now. Yeah, which is good. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there there's still some stinkers, but yeah. I mean, overall, I think I think people are realizing that. Um, but you know, you talk a lot about craft, and I was curious because you know you wrote this this post about 51 books. You wrote another one, I think, like six and a half years in. Um, you know, what has changed from you? I mean, as far as your writing, like first book to like 60th book, you know, what, what have you kind of seen your, you know, ability, how it's grown? What, what, what are things that, that maybe you didn't do before, but now you realize, you know, this is, this is so so much better. I, I, I'm much more aware of story structure than I was. I mean, I just sort of winged it when I first got into, I mean, I just, you know, I'd sort of absorbed innately, you know, from reading thousands of books and watching television and movies, you know, the structure of story, but I had no idea what I was doing. I'd never read a book on craft. I had no idea what an inciting event was, et cetera, et cetera. So now I'm much more, uh, I'm much more cognizant of, of, how to structure story and the sorts of formulas that you know can be helpful once you've written your story um, for evaluating where it's a dud mm-hmm. so which makes it actually much harder to write unfortunately because once you start actually knowing what you're doing then now you become much more critical mm-hmm. and and you know if you know a thousand different choices now you have to make a decision between which of those choices is the best whereas if you have no idea what you're doing except just telling a story sort of like you would around the campfire um you don't have the thousand choices so it's like you're invincible so I would say my confidence in the level of quality of the story is much lower than it was, even though the quality of the stories is much higher. So it's paradoxical, but I think it's it's just a natural part of you know of the evolution of craft. Mm-hmm. 
as you get better at something, it's a Dunning-Kruger effect. You know, I mean, when you don't really know what the hell you're doing, you you are completely ignorant of your own limitations. So everything looks easy and, you know, it's like, yeah, I can knock this thing out in 10 days. But once you actually know what you're doing and you understand things like, you know, three act, four act structure, and you're looking at trying to evaluate, does this chapter, you know, tick all the boxes that I need it to do, um, that, that slows your writing quite a bit, but it results in better writing at least in terms of story and character. Now on prose, I would say, I don't think what I'm writing now is any better than I was writing maybe two, three years ago. I think I came up the curve on prose much faster than I did on story structure. So would you, so say, I, would you say your production, um, has it gotten lengthened or is it just... You yeah, know? it's slowed. It, uh-huh. it slowed considerably because before I would just dash out an outline in three or four days and, mm-hmm. you know, bam, I would go write it. And two, three weeks later, I'd have first draft done. Mm-hmm. So, what's your, you what's your production now as far as uh, like rough draft to finish? Um, it's, 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 I'd say rough draft takes a couple of weeks now. Um, I mean, the outline phase takes mm-hmm. a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks. So I take a lot more time now with my outline. Because I, you know, I, I know kind of what I need to do in 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 the outline to make the story work. So there's more preparation time in the outline phase. I would say in the writing, it's probably still about three weeks. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't think I, I think that's about right because I shoot for around five thousand words a day when I'm actually in a novel, and because I've outlined the thing fairly, um, I've thought it through in advance. I don't have to, you know, every chapter go, hmm, I wonder what happens next. You know, I've, I've thought it through. Mm-hmm. So from a production output standpoint, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in outlining, even though I've done it both ways. I've done it seat of the pants, you know, not knowing what the next chapter is going to be. And I've done it outlining. And I would say they both result in roughly the same story. Mm-hmm. But if you don't outline, it's going to take you three to four times longer to get to the same place. I mean, you may feel better doing it like, oh, this is all so it's so it's just coming to me in a burst of clarity. Well, yeah, but if you just force yourself to, you know, okay, here's the week I'm going to spend thinking through the story, um, your brain will sort of process it all the same way. You just force yourself to do it, whereas, you know, pantsing, you're sort of, you know, you're sort of cogitating on it as you go, which there's no there's no problem with that. The only problem is if you're trying to put out six to eight books a year, novels, Mm -hmm. um, you're going to have a hard time, Mm -hmm. depending on the genre. Sure, sure. I mean, there's some genres, you know, you can knock out 10,000 words a day because it's all first person present tense and 90 percent either dialogue or or inner narrative. Um, And yeah, I mean, you can you can fly doing that because there's not a lot of there's not a lot of, you're not thinking through sentence structure you're not trying to achieve you know certain beats in specific ways that lead the reader into the next paragraph so and i've done books like that by the way like my new adult stuff is pretty much like that and it's just 10,000 words a day no problem 10 hour day 1000 words an hour so you've uh, explored different genres, and I've heard you talk about um, you know writing writing stories that maybe books you like, uh, books you want to read, um, 
you know, obviously you, when you kicked off a lot of your writing with the, the jet series kind of thriller, you know, action adventure type type stories. Sure. Um, what were some of your, your kind of influences, you know, whether growing up or, you know, even later adult life, you know, as far as books you enjoyed ones that kind of got you excited about writing? I would say that, you know, I mean, I, it's all the usual stuff. It was, you know, when I was growing up, I read a lot of like Frederick Forsyth, Robert Ludlum, Clive Cussler, um, you know, all the usual, what they now call men's adventure, mm-hmm. um, Ken Follett, um, John le Carre, um, and, and that got me, you know, I, I liked those kinds of stories, conspiracy driven thrillers, I guess, or action adventure thrillers with a conspiracy underpinning. So, um, that's what I naturally, in fact, I didn't even think about what genre I would write in when I started writing. I just started writing stories like I had read. Mm-hmm. So, and now I, I, I think that I become much more aware of, the, of craft, of, of the, the prose portion of craft, of sentence structure, word choice, use of evocative language, avoiding too many adjectives, although I probably still use too many of them for a lot of people's taste. Um, but I've become more conscious of the craft part. And so guys like James Lee Burke, who I interviewed back in January, um, yeah, that's one of my idols in terms of use of language and creation of 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 deep um very realistic characters so i think i've just shifted the gold posts now like I, I shoot for a higher a higher bar when i write a story than i did five six years ago so and i i shoot for a higher bar with prose and i also shoot for a higher bar with character and with twists and reversals and just more stuff mm-hmm. in the same 80 to ninety thousand pages do you, do you find it uh, difficult when you're, you know, I think you've done some sci-fi too now. And yeah. Yeah. I just stuff. put one out as a matter of fact. Right. Yeah. That was when I, I just saw your, your latest newsletter. And, um, you know, is, do you feel like it's a different muscle? Like when you're, when you're, are you consciously thinking about, okay, this is sci-fi. So here's the, here's the beats I need to hit. Here's the. Oh yeah. Cause they're different beats. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I would say that book is less sci-fi and more like a techno thriller Mm -hmm. in that when I first conceptualized it, it was going to be sci-fi-ish. It was going to, you know, I was thinking Blade Runner. I was thinking Total Recall. Mm -hmm. So those were the the kind of where I started. But where it wound up being was more of a techno thriller in the, you know, Dan Brown set in the future 40 years from now. Mm -hmm. And you're sure. I mean, there's there's these common beats you have to hit based on which genre you're in. So, you know, I would call that in a techno thriller, you know, a thriller always has to have kind of a false ending and then a real ending. You, you know, there's genre expectations. Mm-hmm. So you, you have to be aware of those expectations so that you can not disappoint the reader. And it makes it harder once you're aware of the expectations, because how do you do them in an innovative and fresh way? Like, you know, you have to have the let's call it like in the thriller, I, I guess maybe not in, in a sci fi or a techno thriller, but it's helpful in most thrillers to, or certainly in, in serial killer thrillers, which I've written a few of. You have to have the moment where the the protagonist and the entourage basically has a little, you know, a speech that acknowledges how masterful and fucking smart the serial killer is. So you have to have that. It's a convention in that genre. If you don't realize it's a convention, you may leave it out. Mm-hmm. And if you leave it out, the, the reader won't know why they're disappointed, but they will be. Mm-hmm. 
So knowing that stuff, knowing the conventions in a genre is really important, I think, because then you can make sure you're not going to disappoint the reader, but you also have some obligatory beats that you have to nail, but you have to nail in an innovative and fresh way. And that's where, where it gets hard. Mm-hmm. And you have to, you know, in, a, in the typical thriller, you, you, you pretty much have, have to have the moment where the, the protagonist is at the mercy of the villain. I mean, every Bond film, you know, every, mm-hmm. every thriller has that moment where the evil villain has, has the protagonist, you know, strapped to the railroad tracks, literally, and then manages to somehow escape and, and save himself or herself at the last moment. So if you know that convention exists and if you know that readers are going to be consciously or unconsciously disappointed if they don't have that, that scene – then you're a much more informed storyteller at that point because you know what you, what you got to hit in order for the story to resonate um, with the readers. And that's a lot harder for me than writing prose because that didn't come naturally, like deconstructing different genres and figuring out what the obligatory scenes and beats were doesn't come naturally. You sort of just pick that up by osmosis for the most part. So I've spent a lot of time in the last couple of years sort of playing amateur, I guess, film slash story critic and analyzing for different genres what obligatory scenes and beats have to be in there for the story not to disappoint the reader. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's really good. I, I think, you know, a lot of I'm, I'm amazed how many indie authors I talk to that, you know, don't read much. Um you know, and, and do this kind of work. Cause I think that there are these, yeah, there's these beats, these scenes that are, you know, kind of reader expectation that most stories have on some way, shape or form. It's kind of that, you know, the all is lost scene, you know, and then right. how are the, who's going to come alongside the, you know, the, the protagonist and encourage him to keep on going, you know, and that right. kind of the mentor, off. you yeah. have to, are you going to have a love interest? And if so, you know, how is it yeah. going to play, you know, all of these things, you, it helps if you know them because then you can manage them. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know they exist, that when people tell me, oh, yeah, I don't read, but I'm a, an author. I'm like, well, you know, I, I want to make movies. I just don't watch movies. <laughs> right. Well, OK. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like if somebody said, yeah, no, I want to be a filmmaker. Nah, I don't have time to watch movies. Mm-hmm. You, you'd kind of go, well, you, you sound like a jerk off to me because mm-hmm. that's not going to work. <laughs> mm-hmm. So to me, if, uh, if an author, usually a beginning author says, oh, yeah, no, I don't have time to read. But I know what readers want. Well, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe, but right. I would tend to go, how? how? How do you know that? Right. Well, you know, I, I've told people, you know, go watch Law and Order and you can almost, you know, you, every episode's the same. I mean, you, you know it by the commercial breaks, you know, where right. you know, obviously this guy's not the killer because there's 20 minutes left in the show. Right. <laughs> you know, and it's right, that. But, but I mean, but those are very, I mean, Hollywood actually is pretty good at this now. Uh-huh. Um, it, you know, the old, I think, cliche of most of Hollywood being just a bunch of accountants and marketing guys who don't understand mm-hmm. story at all, sitting around and deciding what gets made. Mm-hmm. There's probably still some truth to that, but they all know story now yep. like they've all read the same 20 books on structure yep. so they they get it so and they have less time to work with than a novelist does so they have to do it really efficiently mm-hmm. so and if i was going to give advice to a novelist that was in any kind of a genre that wanted to be a page turner i'd say hey spend some time looking at how screenwriters do it because they have a lot less 
they have a lot less to work with than a novelist does. And they have to be very efficient in what scenes, you know, wind up in the final cut. And you should kind of be that way when you structure your story. Like if, if it's not absolutely essential to move the story along and it doesn't hit an obligatory beat and it doesn't raise a question in the reader's mind that demands that they read one more chapter just to find out what's going on before they go to bed, then the chapter doesn't belong in the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's real simple. Yeah. And I, I, I think that, you know, one little trick too, that, that, you know, a lot of I've, authors will send me stuff and say, Hey, you know, tell me what you think. And, and what, what I see a lot of newbies is, is nothing happens. Um, there's no conflict, you know, even just cranking up the conflict. It's just kind of like people meandering around just doing things. That's not that interesting. Um, and and sometimes, yeah. Why would anyone read that? Right. It's like we, we read because we want conflict. We want stuff to happen. And we want something fresh. Yeah. We want something fresh. We want to kind of, you know, escape a little bit. And, you know, if people are just kind of going, Hey, what'd you have for dinner? You know, it's not that interesting. Um, no, and, and it's interesting that you bring up conflict because you can have people eating dinner, but you can also have a lot of tension and a lot of yeah. turmoil and a lot of conflict yep. going on. I mean, to me, a chapter isn't a chapter unless there's an inciting incident, there's some sort of conflict that yep. gets resolved. And in a conflict, generally speaking, there's one person who wins and then there's someone else that loses. Yep. So it's pretty easy if I was going to you know, write a book on how to structure how to structure story. It's like, look, if you don't have a conflict – in every chapter where somebody's winning and somebody's losing something and the stakes are steadily escalating and things are getting increasingly complicated mm-hmm. for your characters, you don't have a book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you wrote something uh, in, in your post about, you know, as you've gotten better, you know, going back, looking at some of your older work and saying, you know, if you've gotten better in the craft, you know, maybe rewrite some of the stuff. And I, I think, you know, just even going back and saying, almost what you just said, you know, find, is there conflict in this chapter? Like every single chapter, every scene, is there, is there a reason to keep turning the page? Is there something that's, you know, broken that, you know, again, that could just be, you know, they spilled the spaghetti at dinner or whatever it is, but even just doing that alone would make, you know, so many books so much better. Well, Um, of course, but that's, and that's an essential step once you get done, mm -hmm. but it's, I mean, that's really what you should be doing between first draft and second draft is sitting down and going, okay, chapter by chapter. Yep. You know, and I do it in the outline stage. Yeah. Like that's why, you know, I, I just sit down with the outline and if I can't think of a reason, you know, and I mentally just check it. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, is this an action beat? Is there some piece of information that's critical to the reader that's going to be imparted here? Mm-hmm. Is there some turmoil or conflict that the, the protagonist or one of the other principal characters is going to matter, you know, matters to them? Um, you know, and if they, if they, if not, then it's not a chapter. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like, you know, somebody makes a phone call. Well, OK, you can spend four you can spend four pages on that. But the, the phone call better be a whopper. Yeah, right. I mean, there better be some shit going on in that yeah. phone call. Yeah. Just <laughs> better, better reveal something. Yeah, it's not like, yeah. you know, I'd like a double pepperoni with extra sauce. Right. It better be, you know, your mom wasn't really your mom. You were <laughs> raised by unicorns. <laughs> OK, right. all right. Yeah, now I'm going to keep reading. Yeah, right. So- yeah, and if there's a unicorn, I'm always going to flip the page. So, well, who wouldn't? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I've entered, interviewed, you know, dozens and dozens of, of authors, and and we've had, you know, authors that have written fifty, sixty, hundred books, uh, and you know, multiple jo- genres as well. Um, you know, how do you just as a as a very prolific writer, how do you decide uh, on the next project? I mean, are you 
um, you know, working, Hey, I want to finish this series or just kind of whatever you just feel excited about. Like how, what's no, kind of been- I sit down at the beginning of the year and I kind of chart out a production schedule. And it's usually based on what's selling okay. uh, of my backlist that's selling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, you're going to see two jets this year because jets outsells everything else I write. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to put one out in the summer and I'll put one out around Christmas. It's just like a no brainer. So mm-hmm. there's two of the books I'm going to do every year mm-hmm. until people stop buying jet. Mm-hmm. So then I also I'll give a series three to four books to see if it's working and if it catches fire. And, you know, I'll put typically put out one book per year in that series until it, you know, in, until I know whether or not it's sold well enough to basically justify um, spending additional resources on it. And that's the way I look at it. In other words, I'm not particularly artsy fartsy about it. I'm much more you know, kind of like a product manager trying to decide what content the market wants this year. So I look at that as as content and, hey, you know, like my Day After Never series sells extremely well, so does Jet. So those are going to be the priority in terms of releases. And then I'll usually try one new series every couple of years like this, you know, Quantum Synapse is my first techno thriller. It'll probably wind up being a trilogy, if not more. Um, and I have a conspiracy slash crime, you know, true crime kind of um, thriller series that I'll be putting out a third book in before the end of the year. And I have my Ramsey series, which is just pure Raiders of Lost Art, you know, caper adventure stuff that I'll be putting out a fourth book in. And then, you know, I'll just look and see how they sell. And if the audience isn't that excited about it for whatever reason, then I'll move on to something else. So I'm very pragmatic about it. No, I think that's really, really good advice. I mean, is there ever a time where you're just like, I, I, but I, I really need to write this book because I just love these characters. I love the book. I don't care if anyone. Sure. Sure. But, you know, that's like, okay, well, then do it in your your spare time because, Mm -hmm. you know, this is a job and you're running a publishing company Mm -hmm. and you're the sole content creator for it. Mm -hmm. So if your income expectations and if your career path is such that you're where you want to be and you got a bunch of free time and you want to write that book, you just want to write super duper do so. But if you're, you know, unhappy with your sales and you're unhappy with your marketing and you're unhappy with what your income is from writing books, you don't have that luxury because mm-hmm. it is a luxury. Right. Like, you know, and, and I, hey, I would love to be the kind of author who can write a book every two, three years and the world goes apeshit over it and, you know, the accolades. And I mean, it'd be great. It'd be awesome. I'd be floating around on a boat somewhere. <laughs> Everyone would love me. You know, I'd occasionally, you know, give everyone a wave on social media and then go back to drinking too much. What a great existence. Unfortunately, that's not the market we're in. So, or at least that I'm not the author in that market. So So I view me, I I view my work as much more, you know, guys like Heinlein and Asimov mm -hmm. and even, you know, Philip K. Dick, you know, working writers, you know, Chandler, who, you know, they they put out books on a very regular schedule and they were, you know, they had no expectation they would just put out three books in their career and they'd be Tom Harris. They just, Mm -hmm. that, that simply didn't occur to people. No, I think that's good. Uh, you know, you, you, you have written about this a lot. It's just this, this, you know, idea of, of thinking like a, a business, thinking like a publisher, you know, you're the, like you said, the sole, you know, content creator, you know, almost kind of going back even almost to the pulp days, you know, just, you know, 
sitting down, butt in the chair, you know, no muse, no, you know, magic fairy dust, just you put, you got to go to work. Um, yeah. You want to get paid today? <laughs> right. I mean, that's it. It's right. like, you want to write that app that your, you know, shithead boss keeps telling you, you need to write, or you're going to be fired. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, either write the app or you're going to be fired. Mm-hmm. That's it. Now, um, I'm curious because you've, you've written in, as you've just mentioned a few minutes ago, just the different series, different, um, genres. Um, what's that been like as far as promoting that? Like, are people just expecting a certain kind of story from Russell Blake or are you kind of being intentional about, Hey, this is sci-fi, this is mystery. You know, if you like this, you might like this. Or, um, how has that been just, just trying to kind of walk the line of different genres? Well, it, it has and hasn't worked. I mean, it depends on, you know, like readers will follow me from, you know, from the Jet series to, say, the Assassin series, because while they're not, you know, while the Jet series is more pure, born identity kind of, you know, action adventure stuff, um, and stuff like the Assassin series is a little more, you know, day of the jackally. There's a little more um, intelligence behind it, behind the, the story and the texture and the nuance and all of that. Um, it's close enough that they'll follow, but you know, some of the stuff I, I've got a core gr- group, I would say, of, you know, however many thousand readers who just will buy anything that I put out mm-hmm. because they like the way I write. So that's great. And those are that's my, my core. That's my core following. So th- they don't care what genre it's in. They'll give it a try. Mm-hmm. And maybe this one wasn't their favorite and that one they really preferred more, but they'll still buy the next book, whatever it is. And that's great. That's awesome when you have that as as a writer because it gives you a little more freedom, but it's also a lot more responsibility because mm-hmm. now you can't let them down. <laughs> right. Right? So every book better be at least as good as the last one or there's going to be a lot of disappointed people. Mm-hmm. But in terms of, of – I, I wish that it worked that, oh, yeah, you know, Russell Blake wrote, you know, the Black series, for instance – Black is a noir, Chandler, dark, very viciously funny um, sort of, you know, detective, just hard-boiled, you know, bogey-era, Chandler-esque, um, tip of the hat to the 40s and 50s pulp detective novels. Mm-hmm. And I love those books, and a lot of my readers love those books, but they don't sell as well as the action adventure and the um, the conspiracy stuff. So, you know, I, everyone's been begging me literally for the last couple of years, write another black book. And I just have to look at the numbers and go, you know what? It takes X amount of the only resource I have, which is time. And, I, I you know, I if it's a choice of doing another one of those, even though I love the characters and I love writing the books and the stories are fun and it's just playful and funny as hell for me. I mean, it's just an easy and fun write. Um, I, I don't do it because I can only get out seven books this year. I got to be pretty careful with which seven those are. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm the worst boss to, to work for in the world because when, when I take off my creative hat and I put on my, my you know, marketing manager, product manager hat, I'm very cut and dried about the, the decisions I make. Mm-hmm. 
So in your um, publishing world and your business, uh, you, you know, obviously you have probably a very large, you know, email list. Um, you know, when you first started, I mean, are you trying to, um, do you only send books to certain groups of people or do you just say, you know, Hey, this is Blake Russell. Here's all my stuff. Here's what's coming yeah. out. I mean, no, you- I just, yeah, I have like 28 or 29,000, you know, people on my mailing list. I just send it out and say, Hey, here's, here's the latest book. Here's, here's, you know, what it's about. You know, if you enjoy X, Y, and Z, you're probably going to like it. If, if that's not your cup of tea, well, maybe you won't. So if someone's, you know, coming into the Blake Russell world, um, what can they expect from your books? I mean, what, what's the thing that you, you feel like is kind of a theme that, that comes through, um, in your, in your books? I mean, what would people like, what's the feedback from what they like about your writing? Um, I think they like the prose, like some writers just write, um, sentences, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then there's other types of writers that try to write prose, which is something completely different. Mm-hmm. And frankly, if I, if I just concentrated on writing sentences like if i was going to advise somebody on how to be commercially successful i would say don't write like me mm-hmm. <laughs> no i really would i'd be like look don't write like me i had yeah. this discussion with with a very successful author about a month ago and we were talking about markets and <laughs> a bunch of other stuff and this is someone that makes you know multiple seven figures a year so this is somebody that's doing pretty well mm-hmm. and we were talking about you know, pros level, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, dude, I mean, take some of the top selling books in, in the top 20 and plug them into a grade level analyzer. And I think you're going to find that, you know, the, the, the sweet spot that the best sellers are in are being written at between third and fourth grade, maybe mm-hmm. kissing fifth occasionally. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you really, if you want to be commercially successful, should be writing between third and fifth grade level. Mm-hmm. And I, unfortunately, I just write the way I do. Uh, you know, I tend to write at between eighth and tenth grade level. Mm-hmm. And I've tried, you know, I've tried, I won't say dumbing it down, but simplifying it. But it just, it doesn't work. So that's just, that's my fingerprint. That's yeah. just how I write. Yeah. No, I, so, I, I think it's great. I think, you know, you, um, in some of your, I've read some of your jet books and, it's beautiful. And, and I think it's funny, it's funny you're saying this cause I was in a half price books the other day and opened up a you know, pretty well-known, I won't say their name, well-known author, thriller author. And I started reading it and I thought I was reading like a, you know, young adult. Um, yeah. and, and I, I was just, I kept looking at the book like, Oh, they're getting into kids books now. <laughs> you know, no, just, no, 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 it's seriously. Yeah. But I mean, that's the problem. Yeah. It's not a problem. It's just something you need to be aware yeah, of. It and is, writers, it is. You know, you need to be aware that if you plug a Patterson book into a, a grade analyzer, it will come out at between third and fourth grade level. Mm-hmm. Right. And it used to come out at second grade level, but they've adjusted things so that what used to be considered second grade reading level is now third to fourth because people don't read as well. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> third and fourth grade expectation is what used to be second grade. I wish I was making any of this up, by the way. I'm not. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, this it's... is absolutely true. So if you want to model the most successful author in the world, James Patterson, mm-hmm. You should be writing at between a third to fourth grade level. That's that's what a, a deconstruction and an analysis says. Now that doesn't mean that the subject matter or the story structure has to be, you know, um, Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew, but it means that you better you better ratchet back your prose expectations 
because that's not what the widest number of readers appear to want. So like it, hate it, whatever, but that's just information. But as a marketing analyst, I would look at that and go, you got too many words here. Mm -hmm. So um, you've had, obviously you've had lots of success and you've helped out a lot of writers as well. You, you have tons of readers doing it, doing really well and just keep cranking out the books. And well, one, one I question, I was, <laughs> you can always do better. Right. Right. So, so one question is, you know, when you kind of reflect on, and I, I love these posts that you have written in, you know, about 51 books in six and a half years and just kind of reflecting on that, you know, what, what's kind of a, uh, you, you know, call it a failure, call it a regret, call it, you know, whatever. Um, when, when it comes to writing and publishing, um, that you maybe, you know, did early on that you just go, man, I wish I would have did that better. Or, um, any, anything that comes to mind that you just say, you know, here's my advice to you. Don't do what I did. Yeah. Don't genre hop. Number one, I mean, <laughs> you know, cause I did my first 10 books were all over the map. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, again, I had no idea what I was doing. I was just writing shit. So it was like, Hey, let's see. In fact, I went back and looked, um, today, this morning, I looked to see what I made my first year publishing. And I had put out like nine books. I want to say in 2011, starting June 11th was or June 6th was the first book that I put out. I made a whopping $3,800 off of like nine books. So that that wasn't really setting the world on fire, considering <laughs> I probably had put nine grand into producing those books. So <laughs> it, it, so don't genre hop. Um, would be my first genre mashups are fine. Like if you want to mash up, you know, um, uh, you know, you want to put jet in space, you know, mm-hmm. fine, go, go ahead and do that. But, um, I wouldn't genre hop because when you're first starting out, you're trying to find a reader and a readership and whether you like it or not, you know, genre readers tend to stay in their genre. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people that, you know, only read cat mysteries, pretty much only read cat mysteries. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, 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 but this one's different. Well, okay. <laughs> but, you know, but they love my cat mystery. Right. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's it, super, but but your dog book may not do as well, you know, if, <laughs> if, if, if you're writing contemporary romance. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to work. Mm-hmm. So that would be one thing. And then another would be not to spread yourself too thin um, in terms of, you know, don't get too ambitious with the number of books you're going to put out. Um, and if you can't maintain quality, I mean, if you I, I maintain quality simply by working 12 to 14 hours a day, seven days a week, that's how I did it. Mm-hmm. So but if you if you don't have the ability to do that without your brain melting or, you know, if you've got kids or you got a job, guess what? You know, don't bite off more than you can chew. And there's also a part of me that, you know, I mean, I had this conversation with another like super best-selling author, guy I respect very much, you know, and he was like, dude, have you ever thought about what might happen if you just took a year to write a book instead of, you know, a month, or month and a half? I'm like, no, I, I haven't. And maybe at some point I will do that. I'll give it a try. Maybe it'll be awesome or maybe it'll just be the shittiest book ever because maybe, I, you know, just the way I tell a story you know, has to be full immersion. Mm-hmm. Don't quit until you don't come up for air until you're done. Cause that's how I generally write. Mm-hmm. And maybe taking a year on a book would just, you know, just result in drivel. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Right. Yeah. I had a, I had Joe R. Lansdale on here and he was, he was saying how he, uh, he can't write slow because it, the story just kind of goes cold and he doesn't, 
you know, he's, he needs to be fully immersed in the characters and get the feel and all that. And it's like to kind of just plot along just wouldn't do it. That's interesting. I, yeah. But so, you know, some everybody's people, different. It, yeah, everybody's different. When I interviewed um, James Lee Burke, I was astounded. He he was like, dude, you know, I do 750 words a day. Mm-hmm. That's what I shoot for. Now he's old school and he's, you know, working for a traditional publisher mm-hmm. and he's probably got to be 81 or 82 by now, but that's his process. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't outline, and he just waits for the story to come to him. And God bless him. I mean, he's a genius, so I, I wish I could do that. I just, that's not my process. I, I just can't do that. Sure. So uh, do you have any, um, I always like to ask this question, must-read books of late that you say, you know, there's a there's some books people need to read. Um, suggestions? Could be, well, could you be know, I just, fiction I just or business. Did a, yeah, I did a blurb for one just recently by Boston Tehran. Um, I don't remember the title of it, and I should, but it's whatever Boston Tehran's latest book is. It's a remarkable book in the sense that um, the language is beautiful, the prose is simple, but um, very effective. And it's basically, if somebody asked me to give the elevator pitch, I'd say it's a you know it's a, a retelling right up there with Huckleberry Finn, hmm. Tom Sawyer. So, you know, it's set in the Reconstruction, um, or I guess it's not the Reconstruction years. It's the years leading up to the Civil War. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a compelling, um, beautifully crafted story hmm. that it's not the typical genre that I read. But, you know, I read it literally in one night. Hmm. Sounds great. Yeah, I'll look, I'll look so, up the title. I'll put it in the show notes. Great. Yeah, the, the, the author's name is Boston Tehran. And I was very impressed by one of his books many years ago, A Dog Called Give, um, or, uh, yeah, dog, uh, uh, The Story of, a, of America, I think is what it's called. But that was the first of his books I ever read, and I was like, man, can this guy write? Hmm. So if you're just looking for things that are bite-sized, or, you know, James Lee Burke's latest book um, was was brilliantly crafted, just a beautiful book. I don't remember that. I'm lousy with book titles. I can't remember my own half the time. So asking me for other books, mm, boy. <laughs> Another interesting one is called The Bestseller Code. Okay. Oh, like I, think I, best- a, I think I have that. Uh, yeah. Where they did like, the data research on um, yeah. what actually – that, that was a really interesting book. I, I remember yeah. – uh, I don't know if you remember that. And part of that book that jumped out at me was um, <laughs> they were just talking about um, – you know the the token drug addict character or the the drunk how that's not really that doesn't really sell um it, it's actually more the like normal stuff like family people relate to families and people relate I, I just found that book really interesting yeah i found it interesting because it actually changed the way um i viewed story i mean again you know i, I tend to view story in terms of plot and character and everything but um when you look at the biggest bestsellers um they tend to also have a strong emotional mm-hmm. um, content in that they generate a visceral emotional response either positive or negative and they do it a a, a large number of times within within the single story mm-hmm. so i found it fascinating to think in terms of okay you know, you've got a great, beautifully crafted story here, and the characters are compelling, but is there a, a gut-wrenching, emotional turn, you know, every, you know, 10 chapters? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is no, you may have a good book, but it's probably not a bestseller. Mm. That's good. Like, that's that's a, an epiphany for me. Yeah. Because it's like, well, holy shit, then you better have... Uh, just a gut-wrenching emotional twist about every 10 chapters or, you know, 
consign yourself to writing dinosaur porn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> Not judging. Uh, so I, I had a question just um, as we kind of get to the end of the, the, the episode here or the uh, conversation here is, um, sure. you know, just as you, you've kind of, you know, you talked earlier on about Amazon and, you know, it's, it's kind of the question of the day and, and authors, a lot of authors we, we talk to and ones that listen to the show, it's kind of the question of, have you experimented with going wide as far as outside of Amazon? Um, yeah. you know, what no, are you kind of, kind of learning? Cause you have a lot of books to play with, you know, what, what's, yeah. what's kind of, you seen any changes in that? I know, I know Amazon's still the, the big beast, but. Well, they always will be until Apple decides that they want to actually get serious about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Cause Barnes and Noble is, you know, I mean, they're a train wreck. I mean, they're a bad joke as far as I can tell. Sure. I mean, I still sell books through them uh, and I've got books wide, but I mean, They've mismanaged their business and misunderstood the the ebook space pretty much since they got started. Mm -hmm. And as far as I can tell, they've always been interested in kowtowing to whatever traditional publishing wanted. And they didn't recognize that indies were a force that was coming into the marketplace and was going to revolutionize, you know, the book business. They simply took the traditional publishing view that, oh, well, you know, that's beneath us. Whereas Amazon, I think, you know, they had a different axe to grind. They were they were in a war with the traditional publishers, and they were using the indies as the stick. The carrot was play nice with us, and you know we'll be nice to you. And the stick was, but we don't really need you because instead of John Grisham being in the number one position in the store, you know, I, I mean, we're gonna put Hugh Howie there. Mm -hmm. And guess what? You know, I mean, people are buying his book and it's your loss, not ours. Hmm. So I think that perspective from Amazon was very smart in that they they recognized the the ability to use this emergent group of authors as a stick to get what they wanted from traditional publishing, which was, you know, preferential terms, et cetera, et cetera. And then once they got it, you know, they were able to incorporate that into their model. And, you know, indies now are kind of here to stay. I mean, they're, they've completely transformed the romance book business. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at romance, I mean, if you look, all you have to do is look at the 10 K's for people like, like, um, uh, which, what's the biggest romance? Uh, that's not my space. Harlequin. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's transformed the book business because people who used to be churning out four books a year for Harlequin, maybe getting 2,500 bucks per book can turn out the same quality that they were doing for Harlequin and make 50 grand per book. Mm. Oh. So that drastically affects Harlequin's P and L mm -hmm. and it also affects the genre because guess what? Now the voracious romance reader can read the same quality level that they were, you know, having to shell out five ninety nine or six ninety nine for a Harlequin book, but they can buy it for two ninety nine. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes the same author. Right. So, so I, I think you know I've gone wide and I am wide. I keep some of my series wide. I just took Jet for the first time in six years. I just made it exclusive to Amazon for 90 days um, for Kindle Unlimited to see how that changed the sales curve. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, again, I'm very businesslike about it. I, I don't want to have all my eggs in one basket. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, because if, if Amazon throws a switch tomorrow and cuts my income by 50 percent, whose fault is that? Amazon's or mine? Mm -hmm. That's good. 
So would you recommend just a new, you know, new author that's, you know, got a few books in the, in the can, you know, go wide from the beginning? Yeah, it or? depends, depends on the genre. Okay. It, it depends on the genre. There's some genres that Amazon absolutely dominates. Mm-hmm. So if you're writing, say, military sci-fi, you're an idiot if you go wide, in my opinion, mm-hmm. because 90% of your audience is going to be in Kindle Unlimited. These are voracious readers who, you know, don't want to shell out five, six bucks per book. And they have made the decision over the last three to five years that, hey, I'm going to stick with Amazon because I get everything I want for 10 bucks a month. Mm -hmm. So if that's the genre that you're targeting, you know, you need to write a different type of book for that audience. But you also need to recognize that if you take if you stake out an ideological territory or a philosophical territory of, well, I'm going to go wide simply because it's the right thing to do and I don't want to give Amazon all this power, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. um, you're making a poor business decision. So I, you know, I again, I, I, I'm not beholden to any one vendor, but I'd be an idiot if I had my post-apocalyptic series in anything besides Kindle Unlimited, because the overwhelming number of readers for post-apocalyptic is in Kindle Unlimited. Smart. Uh, so one more marketing question. Um, just, you know, you mentioned early on in our conversation. By the about- way, I suck as a marketer. Yeah. I did no marketing at all, all right. for you know, six of the seven years I've been doing this. So, right. so I'm the wrong guy to talk to about marketing, except what not to do, maybe. Well, what anything that you're seeing, though, would you say, you know, what is working? I mean, is, is Amazon ads working, Facebook? I mean, any of those things? I mean, obviously, BookBuds I haven't still. really tried. You know, I haven't really tried um, Facebook. I've got friends that do really well on it and others that just curse it every day. Um, you know, so the jury's out. And I think that, you know, I think that there's been some very successful courses on how to advertise on Facebook. And as more people got into it, the competition went up and then the price went up. So it reduced the efficacy of the the effort. So for me, you know, what I'm writing running right now is I'm just running Amazon ads and BookBub. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the occasional free, you know, on free booksy or one of the, you know, one of the lower tier sort of ebook um mailing list, you know, sorts of marketing groups. But I haven't seen any compelling evidence that you can get positive ROI on a lot of your advertising effort. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I mean, one of my big, one of my big, I guess, sticking points with advertising and why I was probably late to the game was I wanted to see proof that you could get positive ROI off of like Amazon ads Mm -hmm. or off of Facebook ads. And the truth is you can't, or it's very, very hard to. Mm -hmm. And it's fine if you've got, you know, if you're advertising the first book in a 10 book series, because you can bid a higher number for your clicks and you can afford to basically pay the reader to read your first book, because that's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. If you're converting at a 10 to 15 to one, which is a great conversion rate, um, you would, you would expect to, you know, you may have to, you may have to spend $4 to get someone to read the book that you're going to make $3 selling, but that's fine because if you've got 10 more behind that, and if you convert at a 33 or a 40% rate from book one to book two, you're, you're fine. You're in the money. Mm -hmm. But if you only have one or two books, you're screwed. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. Yeah, there's no other way to say it. You're right. just kind of screwed. Right. Got to have a bigger bookshelf. 
Yeah, I've, I've heard of. some crazy stories. I mean, just people dumping forty grand into you know Amazon ads to make. But it know, doesn't scale. Yeah, is the problem. right. It doesn't scale. If somebody could come to me and show me how to scale a grand a week up to ten grand a week, mm-hmm. and it's scaled, and you could track the ROI and go, hey, I just made ten times more money because I spent ten times more on ads, I'd be all in. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't scale. It just, I mean, it just doesn't. I would that it did. In fact, my biggest frustration with Amazon ads now is it's very difficult to spend your daily budget mm-hmm. effectively. I mean, you can you can piss money down a black hole. That's easy to do. Mm-hmm. But to do it effectively to where you're seeing what, you know, could be constituted as at least neutral ROI to positive ROI, it's very difficult to spend that much money. Mm-hmm. So... You know, it just doesn't scale. Well, Blake, hey, this has been been great. And uh, one question I, lo- I love to ask our guests is, um, you know, imagine yourself, you're on a desert island, um, you know, Drake, Drake Ramsey trying to solve some kind of adventure. Um, and you have a live microphone to, a, to the writing universe. What would be some just advice, some truth that you'd want to say to someone listening? They're writing their first book. They're getting their first book out there. Maybe they have a couple in the can. But you know, that you'd say, hey, here's some things that you need to, to do to think about um, things you've learned along the way. Um, I, I think first and foremost, certainly as a beginning author, I would say write stories that are important to you hmm. because otherwise you're not going to put enough effort into them and you're not going to. Yeah, you, you're not write, write stories that are important to you, that that mean something to you or that are an example of something that you'd want to read that, you know, you can do better than anybody else can and then make sure it's better than what anyone else could. Mm-hmm. So it seems very simple, but you'd be surprised how many people get into this and are like, oh, I'll just write this and throw it out there and see what happens. Mm-hmm. It's like to me. You know, storytelling is one of the hardest ways to make a living you can possibly dream up. There is literally no harder way I can think of on a sustained basis to make a a living wage um, other than maybe lifting concrete blocks in the sun. But if if you look at it in any kind of a career path, this is a very difficult, very, very long odds business. I mean, maybe being a screenwriter is even a harder business mm-hmm. and the odds are even slimmer, but this is, this is telling stories and getting paid for it. Everybody in the world thinks they can tell a decent story and everyone wants to try. And now there's literally bar- no barrier to entry for them to do so. So you're competing against everybody in the world who thinks they can write a story so figure out what your differentiator is, what, what makes you, your story and your ability to tell it different than what they can get from anybody else. And if you can figure that out, then maybe you've got something. But you're not going to figure that out if it's a story you aren't passionate about telling. So pick stories that you care about, that mean something to you, or that you think that you can do better than anybody else, and then figure out what you're going to do differently, what your differentiator is, so that readers can't get what you give them from anybody else. They have to go to you in order to get that. And in musical terms, I would say, you know, there's nobody else like Pink Floyd. There's nobody else like Guns N' Roses. There's nobody else like Nirvana. These are these are groups that basically took what they did and 
owned it. They, they, they made it different enough that if you wanted that, you had to go to them. So if you can figure out how to do that, then maybe you got something. But if you're just telling a story you're ambivalent about or you think you're, that's what the market wants right now, um, if you can't figure out a way to make it your own and differentiate it so that people go, wow, that's different than pretty much anything else I've read in that genre, uh, you're, you might be wasting your time. And life is way too short and way too precious to waste your time. That's your only finite resource you have. That's really good advice. Thank you so much for that. Um, I think that's great. Uh, and then as we uh, wrap up here, tell us the latest projects um, and then where can people find you? Well, I just released uh, I just released a book I'm very proud of. It's a big book. It's almost 100,000 words. It's called Quantum Synapse and it is a techno thriller and it, you know, it's the prose is pretty decent and I think the story is very compelling and I'll be writing another couple of books in that series. It's the first book in a new series, but it doesn't really end with a cliffhanger, so you, you don't feel like you you waited 100,000 words into the weeds and, you know, got left <laughs> <laughs> waiting for the next one for a year. Um, you can find me on Facebook where I rant and rave about everything you can think of, politics, global finance, um, you know, pretty much anything I'm interested in. Um, at uh, I think if you search uh, Russell Blake books or just Russell Blake, you'll find me on Facebook. Um, I have a blog, which I've been terrible about keeping up, which is uh, what? RussellBlake.com. And I'm working on the next in the Ramses series as we speak, and I'll be putting out a new jet probably in August if the river don't rise, and uh, probably another day after never, and a couple more before the end of the year. Well, great. Well, hey, uh, everyone that's listening, go check out Russell Blake's books. Um, they're awesome. And uh, thank you so much, uh, Russell, for all your sage advice and wisdom and, and really helped a lot of people today. So thanks for coming on the show. Well, we'll see, but yeah. <laughs> You're, you may be overselling it is all I'm saying. It's my pleasure, and uh, thanks for having me, Ryan. Talk to you soon. Okay, you too. Well, there you have it, prolific writer nation. Russell Blake. Wow, there's a lot to take in after that conversation. Uh, thank you, Russell, for coming on the show. And, uh, you know, what, what I, I think I, I love about Russell is he just has a very workmanlike attitude towards writing. And I, and I know that's a theme that we have on the show, the prolific writer, put your butt in the chair, get to work. He talks about his struggles and marketing and things like that, but, but really his best marketing has been just writing the next book and putting in the time. Now, obviously many of us aren't able to do eight to 12 hours a day or whatever. Um, but that consistent pace of work and, and, and continually sharing your work with the world. And, and I think that's a lot of the keys to success. And, uh, you know, and Russell talks about his, his struggles and, and, you know, you, you know, not writing to a specific genre in the beginning. And, and again, that's everyone's different in that, but I really appreciate his, um, also talking about just the unpacking deconstructing of story, I think is so important. There's these certain things in stories that we, we, that are expected and just knowing how to do that well is such a helpful 
part of our writer's toolbox. So go check out Russell Blake's website. Uh, all his information will be in the show notes. Go pick up one of his books. You'll really enjoy them. I read a couple of his thrillers and they're, they're great reads. Um, and so a lot of, a lot of stuff to, to choose from. Now, before we go, uh, like I said earlier in the show, check out rockhousepublishing.com if you need some help with your next book project. I'd love to help you with that. And also, if you enjoyed this show, please leave a review or rating on iTunes or Stitcher or uh, SoundCloud or Google Play, wherever you listen to the show. It really helps us get the, the word out about the prolific writer. And I love your feedback. Uh, it's such a, a joy and a blessing to be able to do this show, to serve writers, help them wherever they are on their on their journey. And, uh, and, and before we go, there's just one thing I have to say is, is go get those words on the page. You heard Russell, you, you got to get the words on the page. You, you know, you got, you got to do it. You got to put your butt in the chair and you, you got to go for it and just get the, get the words on the page. Why, why are you still here? You, you should not be here. You should be writing, get, get the words on the page. It's not going to, the book's not going to write itself. You, you got to go sit down and you got to work on it. It's just, it's not unicorns are not going to come down and write it for you and some muse it's not gonna happen you gotta put your butt in the chair and go get that words on the page i'll talk to you real real soon join us each wednesday on the mondo method podcast brought to you by project entertainment network the Mondo Method podcast features authors Armand Rosamilia and Chuck Buddha as they discuss the writing process from both the veteran and the novice perspectives. Each episode ends with a segment called Marketing Morsels, where expert publicist Aaron Sweet Almahari teaches everyone how to promote their work and sell more books. Check us out on the Mondo Method podcast on Project Entertainment Network. This has been an exclusive presentation of the Project Entertainment Network. 